Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. We'll be... Uh, first in Matthew 11, then we'll be moving to Matthew, or excuse me, Mark 11, then to Mark 12. Um, but as we think on this passage, I want to ask you a simple question. How, how do you deal with criticism about your relationship with Jesus? Who he is to you? What does he mean to you? What, what, what did you decide? When you said yes to Jesus, what did that actually provide in your life? Because Jesus himself actually faces this type of criticism from a group of people that actually should know exactly who he is. And that's the religious leadership of the Jewish people. They had been told over countless, really almost 1,700 years, that a Messiah would come, that that Messiah would be born of a virgin, that that Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, that that Messiah uh, would be of the Jewish people, that Messiah would feed his flock, that Messiah would do miracles. They had all kinds of information. What do you do with what you know about Jesus? It's an important question. One that everyone ultimately has to answer. One that the world doesn't necessarily want to hear. You've probably come across this in your daily life. You know, when you talk to people about God in general, most everybody's pretty amicable to that type of conversation. Amen? It's like, oh, who do you think God is? Well, talking about God is very different than talking about Jesus Christ as the Savior. Now, he is God, but he's also one of one. Matter of fact, he himself said about himself that he is the singular way, the singular truth, the singular life. And in fact, he went on further to say that no one comes to the Father but through him. He's the only way. You believe that today? Are you willing to put your reputation on the line for that today? Are you willing to be in this world what Jesus has asked you to be and me to be, us to be as a church, and that's to be his voice in a world that's trying to make religion the issue or God the issue or church the issue or in this case, politics and religion mixed together the issue? Would you join me and pray? And we'll pick up in Mark chapter 11, verses 27 through 33 first, and then we'll move to the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. Father, first we just come. We thank you that Pastor Chet has landed safely in Sierra Leone. We ask God that you would get him the rest of the way uh, to Liberia, that that last leg of the journey would be smooth, that, Lord, you would protect him. We pray for all of the things that he will have to endure, Lord, the, the food, the water situation, just the travel down 
uh, dirt roads into dangerous places. We ask that you would give him great wisdom and at the same time great boldness, that that trip would be fruitful as he ministers with Othello to these wonderful, amazing pastors that pastor these churches in literally the middle of nowhere, uh, that you would bless that time, that it would be so incredibly fruitful that your name would be glorified. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, would you open our eyes to truly see and our ears to truly hear what the Spirit would speak as we listen to how you, Jesus, answered your critics. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember that context is king. We're really going to focus on chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. But the context requires that we go back to chapter 11 to verse 27. And if you'll turn there, then they came again to Jerusalem. Who's they? This is Jesus and the disciples. There's two groups of people that are in view in this passage. Those two groups are Jesus and the disciples principally, and then also those that follow next. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him. Now, this is very important. We just saw Jesus, triumphal entry. He's come into Jerusalem. Those in Jerusalem who were there for Passover... Perhaps, according to Josephus, maybe as many as two million people in the general vicinity, but certainly hundreds of thousands around the city of Jerusalem. These incredible throngs of people have shouted, Hosanna to him who comes in the name of the Lord. God save us now. Okay? They've pronounced him king. They have recognized who he is. Jesus has now retired with his disciples. He has come back to Jerusalem. In our mind's eye, these seem like very separate places, but he's come down the Mount of Olives. He's reached the valley floor, which is the brook Kidron. He would then go across that brook. A hundred yards on the other side are the walls to the Temple Mount. He would go around to the south end of the Temple Mount to the southern steps, and he would enter into the area where he flipped over the money changers' tables. That's where they would be, in the court of the Gentiles. Jesus is back inside with the disciples, and here comes his accusers. These accusers are the political power elite of the day. They happen to also be the chief priests, so that would be Annas and Caiaphas. It would be the scribes, the members of the Sanhedrin, and also the elders of the Jewish religious leadership. But in constitution, what they really represent is the mingling of politics and belief in God. Why do I say that? Because these are the same people that will be in league with Pilate to put Jesus to death within a week. They will gather together and try and take Judaism and force it into working together with Rome. It didn't work. And it still doesn't work today. So be very careful because we are children of the kingdom. Amen? That kingdom is not actually of this earth. It's a heavenly kingdom. Jesus did not preach an earthly one. He preached a heavenly one. The kingdom he was presenting was the kingdom of heaven. 
these Jewish religious leaders attempted to ask Jesus, by what authority have you come here? You see, they had the authority. They were the power brokers. They literally controlled Jerusalem. This is the reason that they were mad about Jesus flipping over the money changers' tables because they were profiting from that business inside of God's house so much so that Jesus called them what? You've made my father's house into a den of thieves. These are the same scribes, the same Pharisees that met with John the Baptist in the Jordan River Valley when John was baptizing. And what did John say to them? Oh, you brood of vipers. These are the same guys, but they're really religious. Matter of fact, they were leaders in what one would say was the church at the time, the Jewish church. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? But Jesus answered and said to them, Well, I will also ask you one question, and then answer me. And then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? Answer me. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? Because you remember what John actually said to them? He said, don't you dare come down here to be baptized. You first go do the works of repentance, and then you come back back here, and I'll baptize you. He said, no playing church here. No being fake. Don't come down here to spy out the land. Don't come to see what you can get from this. Maybe you can add this to your services, and you can have a baptism too. Don't, Don't you try and take what is holy and make it unholy, you first go get yourselves right with God, then come back here and I'll baptize you. He's drawing their attention to what they already know to be true. Why then did you not believe John the Baptist, him? But if we say from men, they feared the people. For all counted John to have been a prophet indeed. And so they answered and said to Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus answered and said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is going to deal with this head on. This is one of the few passages in the New Testament that clearly show the other side of God's grace. A vast majority of the time when Jesus is dealing with most everyone else, he says to the woman caught in the act of adultery, where are your accusers? Go and sin no more. But he calls these unbelievers who are set in their ways directly into contact with the truth. He says, we're not playing anymore. I want you to answer me. Because whether you like it or not, The kingdom of heaven is exalted above the kingdom of earth. 
There, there is a place for politics. There's a place for country. There's a place for rule of law. There's a place for constitution. There's a place for all those things. There's a place for our citizenship in the world that we live in, and we should be the best citizens. But Jesus is saying there's a higher authority than earth. There's a higher authority than you guys. You may be in league with Rome. And so he is going to address that when we get to chapter 12. But I want to draw your attention to what Jesus is actually referring to here. You see, Jesus didn't do anything in private. He did his miracles in public, didn't he? So there was no way that they could deny what had happened with John. There was no way they could deny that Jesus did miracles. And so he says, let me ask you a question. Where did John get his authority from? Because John had clearly stated that he wasn't even worthy to tie the sandals of Jesus. So if they assumed that, as Herod did, John had been raised from the dead, that he had the power to come back, that was actually one of the things believed about Jesus. He's saying, I want to get you guys thinking the right direction. I I want you to be in that place where your head and your heart are matching up. Let's talk about this. Let's speak about what's going on here. The truth of the matter is, at John's baptism, do you recall what happened with Jesus? Jesus is coming to John to be baptized, and John actually says, no, it is you who should be baptizing me, right? But what happened? Jesus said, no, I I want you to baptize me, John. They were actually cousins, by the way. What happened at Jesus' baptism? Who testified of who Jesus actually was? God the Father spoke from heaven, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And hundreds, perhaps thousands of people heard that voice. What also happened? The Holy Spirit descended and landed on Jesus. So all of this testimony that these guys denied out at the River Jordan was now coming full circle back to Jerusalem. I'm still who I said I was. The people just shouted, Hosanna, God save us now. They were talking about me. You guys are asking me what my authority is. Who's your authority? Where did you get the authority? Because unless they're willing to condemn themselves, they can't condemn Jesus. And they were enraged by this. It was bad enough that he'd flipped over the money changers' tables, but now, essentially, Jesus is saying, look, my authority's from heaven, where's yours? The truth of the matter is, their authority did not come from God, it came from the earth. It came from themselves. They largely voted each other into office. And so Jesus is saying, let's talk about who you are. Where are you at with all of these things? What's going on in your life? And so Jesus answered, look. Baptism of John. Was it from heaven? Well, the truth of the matter is, they had heard the voice too. 
they had seen the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus too. They had witnessed Lazarus is traveling with Jesus, who was formerly dead. So there was this incredible witness of who Jesus was, and they were trying to say, who gave you the authority? And Jesus is saying, come on, guys. Where do you think I got the authority? Who who do you think, what voice was that that came from heaven? Jesus was trying to get them to come to terms with who they actually are. But the truth of the matter is, these guys held all the cards. They had the most followers on Twitter. They had the social media team. They had their own vlog. They had blogs. They had script writers, teleprompters. Well, no, maybe not that. But they had all the earthly power. You know how we know that? They would be successful in getting Jesus killed. They would go to Pilate. We don't want Barabbas. We want, or we want Barabbas. We don't want this Jesus guy. And they had so convinced the masses that that was true that the masses are going, we do not want this man to rule over us. They went from Hosanna to kill him in one week. That's the power of groupthink without the Holy Spirit and without God. They make up their own rules. Jesus didn't demand that they worship him. Matter of fact, he came on a donkey, amen? He wasn't exactly arrayed as a king. His entourage looked like you know a group of vagabonds from someplace out in the desert somewhere. And so these men are now on the horns of dilemma. You can almost see Jesus can, hey, guys, can you spell the word dilemma? We use an axiom, you know, that person is on the horns of a dilemma. And I'll I'll help you understand this. When you're in a dilemma, there's a choice, or there's usually two choices to be made. You're not sure which one needs to be made, but it looks like both of them are important, and it kind of looks like maybe this is like a win-lose situation. You choose one way you're going to lose, and then you turn it around, and it looks like the same from the other side. It's much like, and I'm not promoting bullfighting, okay? Somebody came to me after seconds, or you should never talk about that. I hate bullfighting, okay? Everybody got that? But I think we all know what it is, amen? So imagine you're in the ring, and you happen to be a matador. You have out your red cape, and you're flapping it in the breeze, and el toro comes charging towards you. Does it matter which horn you get gored by? Not really. The horns of a dilemma means that both choices have some danger. That neither one is actually going to work out for you all that well. These guys have backed themselves into a corner. And no matter which way they go, they are going to be on the losing end of it. And here's the crazy part. They know it. So they result to saying, "Ah, we don't know. We're not quite sure. The truth is, they knew exactly what Jesus was getting at. But they couldn't say it. 
because they had so bought into their little tiny world view that they were in charge and Jesus can't possibly be who he says he is that they are going to deny it to their own demise. You ever meet people that you've shared the gospel with that that's exactly how they respond? And here's how it works. Your life, your testimony is your life and your testimony and nobody can take it away, nor can they deny it. So all of the former drug addicts in this room say amen. Amen. All the former alcoholics say amen. Amen. All the perverse, no, don't say that. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? We, we all had those issues that the Lord has worked in our lives and moved in our lives, and we are walking miracles in that sense. Amen? Amen. So the Lord, the Lord is calling these guys out saying, look, are you going to actually deny the fact that I fed the 5,000 plus women and children? Are you going to say that Lazarus is actually still dead even though he's right over there? Are you, are you going to tell me that That water turned into wine at the first miracle didn't actually happen when there were hundreds of people at that event. Where where are you going to stop denying where my power came from? That's not the question. The question is, where do you get your authority from? And the answer to that question was, they gave it to each other. They made themselves king. And that is the problem with every human heart. We want to make ourselves king. We want to rule our own little worlds. We want to control. We want to do what we want to do. And we don't want anybody interfering with what we want to do. That's called having a sin nature. Amen? That's what happens. And Jesus is confronting this very thing in their lives. As they go through this dilemma... Basically, they feared the people. Why? Because the people were just shouting that Jesus is king. They're going, we, we can't stand against the masses. I mean, there's 50 of us here. The whole Sanhedrin was there, 72 of them, plus the chief priest. This is a mess. The fact of the matter is, when you look at what they had been doing, they didn't have any right to baptize. Why? Because Moses baptized no one. There's no baptism in the Old Testament. It doesn't come from there. This was a new thing. Yes, the children of Israel walked through the Red Sea, and that was kind of like a baptism. Paul saw that. Peter also saw that the Ark of of Noah was similar to a baptism. But this was a new thing. Basically, he's saying, look, I have repented of my sins And I'm acknowledging before all of these people that I'm living a new life. That was not in Judaism. And so where did that baptism come from? Well, God said it came from him. So you're going to deny that? If you do, you have a problem with God, not a problem with Jesus. And so while Jesus is saying these things, these guys got backed into a corner to where the only thing that they could say was, we got nothing. We got got no way that we can say anything. And Jesus is going to agree with them by not arguing with them any further. Did you know that when you stand on the truth, 
you don't have to keep repeating it. You don't have to explain it indefinitely. Jesus Christ alone saves. That is a truth. So when someone comes to you, well, I don't believe that. Well, that's on you. That doesn't change the fact that it's true. Jesus is the only way, and he is the only truth. And you can't come to the Father. Well, what about all the rest of the world religions? Apart from Jesus Christ, they're lost. That's, a, that's what the answer to that question is. But you see, in our world, we want everything to be accepted. We want all roads to lead to heaven. We want every religion to be treated the same way. And Jesus is saying, no, I am the way. I'm God. And to prove it, he is going to illustrate it with a parable. So if you don't believe what Jesus is saying about himself here, you're going to get the explanation he gave to the scribes, to the chief priests, and to the elders of the Jewish religious leadership who were also the political rulers of that day. They said, where did you get your authority? And what follows in chapter 12 is the explanation that he is going to give them. And he does not ever go back and speak to them again about their position. He simply states his position in a parable. The what and why. Why does Jesus do that? Chapter 12, verse 1. Let's look at it together. And then he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it and dug a place for wine, for the vat, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers or husbandmen, if you have a King James Bible. And he went into a far country. So Jesus now is going to tell them a story. Parables are interesting. Very often, it's been said, that they're an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And that is sufficient to understand what a parable is in general. But I think there's a little deeper meaning here that the Lord would have you understand today. Because a parable isn't just an earthly story, i.e. the lost sheep, the one that we're looking at, perhaps the soil and the seed. These things that we would understand, but they would really be understood in the Jewish context during the time in which Jesus spoke them. But a parable in that sense is defined by parabola. So if I take a ball in my hand right now, it's baseball season, praise God the Dodgers are back on track, (laughs) and and I'm going to underhand it to second base, right? I have the ball in my hand, I fielded it cleanly, I've made the transfer, I'm right-handed, so I'm going to take it in my right hand, I'm going to throw that ball. The first thing that's going to happen is I'm going to accelerate the ball. And because of the angle at which it leaves my hand, it is also going to go up, It's going to reach what's called apogee, and once it reaches the high point, it's going to be descending on exactly the same path as it went up, and it's going to get to the other side, and it'll eventually hit the ground. It makes what we call a curve. So in that sense, a parabolic statement 
is something to where something is thrown up in the air, it travels some distance, it reaches its high point, and then it descends to a known conclusion called gravity. Jesus is about to give them a parable. At first, they'll be listening to it with very intent hearts as he speaks the first few words. He speaks of a vineyard. This is not the first vineyard, and every single one of those guys would have known it. It's in Isaiah chapter 5, and they knew who the vineyard owner was. They knew who the husbandman was or the vine dresser was. They knew exactly what that parable is about. But they didn't like that Jesus was using it because it was being used about them. Notice what he does. Could have a couple of meanings. Maybe it's just a story. But Jesus is using this in much the same way that he told them in Matthew 13 that he was going to use parables. He said, therefore, Matthew chapter 13, you don't have to turn there. You can mark it down, read it later in verses 10 through 17. From here on out, Jesus is only going to explain the parables to his disciples. The whole world's going to be able to hear them. The whole world's going to be able to listen in on that truth. They'll get to hear the stories that's lofted into the air and as it descends out the other side. But Jesus said, therefore, I speak to them in parables because seeing... They do not see. Jesus had just told them the truth. The problem is not my authority. The problem is your authority. But they didn't want to hear that. But that was the truth. The problem wasn't Jesus. It was them. And while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. For in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, hearing, you will hear not. And you shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for your hearts of this people, these people, have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they understand with their hearts and turn, that I should heal them. But blessed be your eyes, because you do see. Your ears, because you do hear. You see, there is a place and a time when Jesus does not any longer force the issue with people who have hardened their hearts in unbelief. He just simply tells them the truth, and it's now on you. It's why it is so dangerous for people to come to church and do nothing with what they hear. It's why it's so dangerous for people to have a constant witness in their life. And to continually turn away from that truth. Well, I don't want to believe that. I I believe we got here by evolution. I think my aunt actually still is blue-green algae. (laughs) I I believe that we're just here by random chance process. This whole religion thing, that's a crutch. Look, if Jesus is a crutch, give me two. I will will gladly use my crutches to get into, into heaven. Give me Jesus. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus is speaking some things that don't fit into their narrative, especially the political part of it, to where they've become embedded in the Roman way of life. They don't want to hear it. 
They don't want to lose their position. They don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their prestige. They don't want to lose their provision and any other P that you can think of right now. They don't want to lose it. They want to keep what they have. That's why Jesus said, unless you lose your life for my sake, it is only then that you shall find it. You can't keep what you already have. Jesus is an all or nothing proposition. And so from this point on, Jesus is going to not even speak. Remember when they come to arrest him, he, he, he does not even speak to Annas. He doesn't speak to Caiaphas. There's nothing to say to them. And when he is condemned and they're shouting and yelling, give us Barabbas, he's just saying to Pilate, What is the accusation? Who is the accuser? It's these guys. That's how hard your heart can become when you reject the truth. That's what can happen. And so the question then becomes for us, what about this parable and why this specific parable? Well, if you turn to Isaiah 5, you can turn there later. You can read it later if you want, or you can turn now and just peruse while I'm speaking. It is the parable of the vineyard. It is one that every Jewish person knew. It is one that they had already lived out. It is one that the prophet Isaiah himself saw fulfilled in his day. And it was the parable that God was the owner of the vineyard. And Israel was the vineyard. And the husbandmen, the vine dressers that were taking care of the vineyard, were completely unfaithful. That's the reference. Because these guys are Jewish religious leadership. They know exactly what the prophet Isaiah said. And the prophet Isaiah prophesied, furthermore in chapter 5, by the time you get to the end, a series of woes because of what the vine dresser did with the vineyard that belonged to God. God planted it. God hedged it in. God watered it. God took care of it. And he turned it over to somebody else. He's starting to get the picture. And that somebody else was unfaithful with it. That's the reference point from a Jewish perspective. And so knowing that... What had happened? Well, Isaiah's prophecy had come absolutely true. How do we know? Babylonians, Assyrians, Israel was taken captive. You ever noticed how the Jewish religious leadership has selective amnesia? They're always saying, we, we've been in the bondage to no one. The truth of the matter is, they'd been in bondage to everyone. These same guys said that, by the way. Well, we, we've never been in bondage to anyone. Oh, except the Egyptians for 400 years. Except we wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Except when we got into the land, it was already occupied by vastly superior forces. And we pretty much got kicked around the promised land for 700 years. 
we finally came into our own. We got to this place, and the Romans came. And actually, they rule the land right now. But we're still okay. Be careful when God speaks to you and when he shows you things. And then he makes good on those promises. It is best that you do not ignore them. He's saying to them, guys, look at your own history. The news is completely dire. And as these grapevines, these wild grapes, this was, this was Israel all the way to the rejection. Where were they? They were under the thumb of Rome. Where had they been? Under the thumb of Babylon. Before that, under the thumb of Assyria. There's three biblical plants that symbolize the nation Israel. What had he just done to the fig tree? Because that's one of the three. He spoke to it, cursed it, and it withered and died right in front of their eyes. Can you imagine these same people going, well, he did kind of curse the fig tree, but he doesn't really mean it. Well, yeah, he's about to explain that we're the husbandmen, we're the funky vine dressers, but he doesn't really mean it. And the other one, the olive tree. The olive tree lasts a long time, but you know, sometimes it goes through periods of drought and it doesn't bear fruit. And in fact, if you go to Israel, you travel and you go to the Garden of Gethsemane, it may be that the rootstock of those trees are the same as the ones from Jesus' time. It's possible. Why do I say that? Because an olive tree can go through a very long period of bearing absolutely no fruit until the conditions are right. That's Israel. What had happened? They didn't even get back into the land of Israel until 1948, 75 years ago, May 14th. They spent 2,000 years almost kicked out of their own land because these guys didn't hear this message. They were the pitiful overseers. Verse 2. And now at vintage time, speaking of that vineyard, he, who's the he? That's the owner. Sent a servant to the vine dressers, the husbandmen. That would be the leaders of Israel, the very guys that Jesus is now talking to. That he might receive some of the fruit of the vineyard from the vine dressers. And they took him and beat him. And they sent him away empty handed. And he sent another servant. And at him they threw stones and wounded him in the head. They sent him away shamefully treated. And he sent another. Him they killed. And many others, beating some and killing some. You just had described all of the prophets of Israel. Every last one. Here's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be bearing fruit unto God. But we're worried about the money changers' temple. Money changers' tables in the temple. We're wondering about who's in charge. We're, we're, we're getting our... Hierarchies established here. 
And therefore, still having one son. This is starting to get pretty interesting to you. So the owner of the vineyard sends messenger after messenger. Do you see the ball in the air? It's about to reach its high point, its apogee. It's about to start descending. And the owner of the vineyard had a son, his beloved. For God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son into the world that the world through him might be saved. He's saying this to the Jewish religious leadership. You guys are the vine dressers. You're the husbandmen of the vineyard. You've been taking care of the truth. You're supposed to be the guardians of this incredible message of God's grace, and you're worried about the money changers' tables. And he sent him to them, the very last, saying, well, they'll respect my son. God himself had said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, connected him with John the Baptist. And in doing so, he's telling these guys, the man standing before them, Jesus of Nazareth, is his own son, the one prophesied by the prophet Isaiah is standing in front of you right now. Surely you will listen to him. But those vine dressers said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. We can have all of his stuff, we can have everything. We'll just knock off the owner's son. And so they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. And therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. Who do you suppose those others are? You're sitting with them right now. The gospel of grace, the Gentile world. What happened to Israel? They effectively went into non-existence in what we call the diaspora. They were scattered to the four corners of the globe, which is not really truthful because there's no corners on a globe. But they were scattered all over the earth. They were nearly wiped out in the Holocaust. They returned in 1948, May 14th. They now have a nation where there's roughly 9 million Jewish people living in Israel. God's saying, look, I'm telling you the truth. Do not reject my son or this will happen to you. If you ever wanted proof, this is why Winston Churchill said this very thing. If you want proof that God exists, look no further than Israel. Because they shouldn't exist at all. But they do. Because God made a promise. Romans chapter 11. You can read that later. One day all Israel will be saved. But it won't be until they see Jesus for who he is. When they mourn the one that they pierced. Just exactly as Zechariah said. 
another one of the prophets that they killed. Why is this important to us? Because this is a Rubicon. This is a place that they can't cross. Because if you do, it sets in motion something that you can't stop. There comes a point in time in everyone's life where I believe God has been gracious and kind and gentle and tender and intends that all be saved and none should perish. That's God's side of it. But there does come a point in time when God says, if you don't want me, I'm going to accept what you have decided. And that is exactly what he did with these guys. That's also what he did with Judas, by the way. Judas had an opportunity to repent in the garden. Do you remember what Jesus said to him? You remember? Are you going to betray the Son of Man with a kiss? There comes a point in time when you have to choose. And Jesus is calling them into account for what they already know. He's effectively saying, the son of the owner of the vineyard is standing right in front of you. Do you not see him? Do you not recognize him? Are you going to kill me too? And the answer to that question is yes. They are going to kill Jesus. How do we know that? Because they're successful within a week. Jesus will be dead in less than a week because of these guys. Now the truth of the matter is my sin is responsible for Jesus being on the cross. But the ones who had an active hand in it are the ones that rejected the truth in this moment right now. This very minute. God had grown that vine into maturity in Egypt. The Hebrews managed to prosper in the wilderness of sin, didn't they? They went in as a There's a minimal group of people across the Red Sea, and there in the wilderness, they began to grow. And by the time they enter into the promised land, there may have been a million or more Jewish people. And God had sent them a pillar of fire and sent them a cloud and said, my presence will be with you. Sent them a prophet, Moses. Sent them a priest, Aaron. God had done absolutely everything he needed to do to say, This is who I am. Will you believe? And prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, they killed. Messenger after messenger after messenger, they denied. They heard the truth, and exactly as Matthew records, seeing they did not see, And hearing, they did not hear. And the answer, are you going to kill the owner's son? Yes, we are. We'd rather have the stuff of this earth than eternal life. We'd rather walk in our own truth than the truth of God. The unfortunate end to this is it leads 
to exactly what was prophesied by the Old Testament prophets. They would pierce the Messiah. That's what Zechariah said. He would be crucified. That's what David predicted. A thousand years before crucifixion was even invented. But God didn't miss any of it. Elijah, Elisha, all of them came and went. They had already allowed John the Baptist to be beheaded under Herod. And now the only one standing between them and the wrath of God was Jesus right in front of them. And this is where it gets very personal to you today. What about you? Is this just a fairy tale? Is this an ancient story written by an ancient people? Is this a concoction of the mind of man? Because if it is, you turn your blind eye to it, so what? But if it's truth, what are you doing with that truth? I believe it's truth. And the proof is in the changed lives in this room. The proof is in the history of the church. The proof is in what God has done to make sure that we understand that what he says he means. But these guys decided that they would journey off into their own little world of intellectualism. They would just keep with their plans. Like, yep, we plan on killing them. There's a lot of ways to kill the voice of God in your life. I hope no one is in this room thinking of that or watching online thinking that, yeah, I I just don't, I don't really want to believe. Their doom was sure, and it would be swift. They were about to commit the ultimate crime. They were about to kill the owner of the vineyard's son. That is how hard the heart of man can become. You can hear the truth over and over and over again and do absolutely nothing with it. Paul would go so far as to say that the wrath of God abides on all unbelief forever. And so here it comes. Have you not even read this scripture, Jesus says to them? Verse 10. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. He's quoting from the Hallel, the Songs of Ascent. He's, he's saying to him, Look, you guys sing this stuff when you go up to the temple. Do you believe it? How many people could repeat Christian nursery rhymes? How many people can say, Yeah, I know who Jesus is? But the question is, do you believe it? Do you believe who Jesus is? They sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude. They wanted to kill him right now. They would be successful, but it would take a little bit of time. But they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. Would you please underline that? 
they knew. Your job when you're sharing Christ with people, you are not the Holy Spirit. Your job is not to convince them. Your job is to share the truth with them. Your job is to let them know that there are two kinds of people in this world. There are saints and ain'ts. There's believers and unbelievers. They're saved and not saved. There's, there's no in-between. You're not kind of, sort of a Christian. You're either a believer or not a believer. And so what Jesus is really getting at is while he's saying these things, he's causing them to come to that place to where they have to make a decision. But notice what they did. They understood fully that Jesus was speaking to them and about them. But they left him and went away. I pray that's not you today. I pray there's nobody here today that that's you. That you hear the truth repeatedly as, as Pastor Chet delivers consistent messages of the saving grace of God, the gospel of Christ. That you're listening to those messages and doing nothing with it. That you think somehow it's all going to work out. Without Christ, it doesn't work out. Without Christ, you perish eternally. Without Jesus, you do have a destination after you take your last breath. Every person in this room listening online or who listens to this later, you are going to live forever. The question is where? Where? Is it in heaven? Or is it in the place that Jesus actually spoke about more than heaven called hell? Jesus was calling them to make a decision. Decide. Choose today whom you're going to serve. And they walked away. Tough passage of scripture. You see, because you're going to be offered alternate truths, alternate endings. Oh, well, we're just all, you know, here as funky acts of evolution. And when we die, you know, it's just like we cease to exist. Every Buddhist believes that your hope is that one day your candle will be finally snuffed out. You'll become part of the great cosmic oneness. The truth is, what Jesus said was, if you believe in me, you'll have eternal life. And if you don't, you will perish forever. So who's right? Well, Jesus proved who he was. I hope you believe him. Would you stand with me? Because the truth is, Jesus is either your savior or your judge. I don't want to leave you without an opportunity because the beauty of all of this is God's speaking to you right now. And there's probably some of you in this room that need to make that decision. Where are you going to go? Are you going to turn and walk away? Or are you going to receive Christ and be saved? It's up to you. We have a prayer team in the prayer room. And as soon as we finish praying, I'm going to challenge you. 
just simply go and say, I want to know Jesus. It's that simple. Not a hard thing, but it's a hard truth. Father, we thank you that grace is free. The gospel truly saves. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room today, maybe they're watching online, and they've continued to just do what these Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, and elders are doing, which is to keep hearing the truth and they turn a blind eye to it and walk away. I pray there wouldn't be a single person that leaves this room today without inviting you, Jesus, into their life. Your word says, if we will just believe on your name, we'll be saved. That you, in fact, did die for our sin. That you rose again on the third day. That you live forevermore. That you are, in fact, the only way that leads into life and godliness. So, Lord, we just commit the truth to you. And pray that you would help us to speak that same truth to people who need to hear it. Lord, that we wouldn't shy away from the difficult passages of Scripture. So we bless you for that grace that we have to walk, to live our lives and this wonderful life that we have on this earth and to know that the promise of heaven awaits. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.